So today we indeed do begin a short study in the book of Ruth. One person has described Ruth as a gem, but a gem in the sense of a gathered and concentrated power, a a bright clarity shining from beneath a, a somewhat deceptively simple setting. Another said that Ruth is like a diamond that gathers and concentrates light from all directions onto Christ with an intensity and a radiance that is breathtaking. In other words, this little book, this little book of Esther packs a powerful punch because it is utterly packed with redemption-rich themes. Ruth is just four chapters long, but it is fathoms deep in terms of truth. With its illuminating power, Ruth serves as a very bright light during a time in Israel's history when the gospel was suffocating in darkness. So, I want to begin our study in Ruth with an invitation. Given its concentrated power, Ruth has the potential to help us tangibly grasp the gospel, to capture not just what redemption is, but even to a degree what redemption feels like through the pain of utterly devastating loss and through the restored fullness of one particular family in history. So we will begin with an invitation. I invite you not only to to think as we go through the book of Ruth, but to open your heart to feel as we walk through its pages. I invite you to bring your joys and your disappointments, your longings and your unmet desires. And I invite you to bring your pain into the presence of the Lord and into the life-giving light of God's spirit-saturated word. All of our brokenness and all of our pain, all of the glory and all of the joy, even all of our unfulfilled longings in this world are all pointing forward to another far more perfect world. To borrow imagery from C.S. Lewis, all the glory and joy you have experienced in this world are hints, just glimpses, They are a tantalizing taste of much, much more to come. The brokenness and pain you have felt are are stepping stones to another realm. And your unmet desires are like the scent of a flower you have not found. The echo of a tune you have not heard like getting news from a land you have not visited. But the more fully we are able to grasp 
the reality of our redemption now in this present world, the more fully our hearts will be satisfied in Christ, both in this present world and in the much, much more glorious world to come. May the Spirit help us to comprehend the reality of our redemption with absolutely stunning clarity as we walk through the book of Ruth. Our passage is Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. We're just going to cover the first five verses since we're also going to be celebrating communion together today. Hear then the word of our covenant-keeping God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, Lord, would you minister to us now by the power of your Spirit and with his glorious presence so that you might do in us what you desire this morning. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Ruth is a true story about a real historical family that reveals the fullness of God's redemptive plan. Ruth is a true story about a very very real family that reveals the fullness of God's redemptive plan. Ruth answers the question, what does redemption look like? And what does redemption feel like in the lives of broken and rebellious people just like us? Now, we'll break our passage out and get introduced to our book by looking at some important names and places and themes. The book of Ruth opens with a flurry of names. But even before we are given the names of several of our main characters, our story begins with an ominous first sentence. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, that is a man who lives in the promised land, he went to sojourn or to stay temporarily in the country of Moab. He and his wife 
and his two sons. If you were an Old Testament Jew and you heard this first sentence, you would be very concerned. Now, it's a little bit tricky to see, but you can notice that the green is the promised land. Judah is on the left of the Dead Sea. And Bethlehem is just below Jerusalem. So Elimelech and his family would have traveled into the territory of Reuben and then down to Moab. The man who lived in the promised land was going to live for a while in enemy territory. We're only one sentence in, and already there is tension in this story. Why? The opening scene is the Old Testament equivalent of the person who, in a scary movie, whose car breaks down on a deserted road, and decides to walk up to an old, run-down, overgrown house to get help because they think they see a light on in an upper room. The whole time you are saying to yourself, don't do it. <laughs> this situation is not going to end well. And it doesn't. Elimelech. The man from the promised land dies in a foreign land. His sons marry Moabite women who historically were the downfall of the men of Israel because they helped to unite the hearts of the men to foreign gods, Numbers 25. And the same thought crosses your mind again. This situation really is not going to end well. And it doesn't. Verse 5, both sons die, and the woman, Naomi, is left without her husband and without her two sons. The situation was critical before, when food was scarce. The situation now is utterly desperate. During this time in history, in this particular region, an older woman with no male relatives essentially had a delayed death sentence placed on her head. She might be able to survive briefly for a time, but she has a life, a very brief life, of sorrow and scarcity ahead of her with no hope of a future before her. And this tragic story could have ended right here. Elimelech should have known not to go up to the old run-down house with the light on in the upper room. He should have known better than to leave the promised land. He should have known better than to journey into a foreign land rather than to trust in the Lord his God, even, even in the midst of famine. So far, we're not even a half a chapter in, and this isn't a very good story. 
But I wonder what chapter you're in. I wonder what chapter you're in in terms of the unfolding story of redemption in your life. Depending on the chapter that you're in, it may be worth asking or even realizing how you're feeling about where you are in this chapter of your life. Is God's gracious hand of provision evident in your circumstances? Or do you feel more like Naomi? A little later, Naomi will ask to be called Mara, which means bitter. She will say, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Names are very significant in the telling of this story. As you sit here, if you're in a place of what might feel like spiritual famine, things, things could feel very hopeless. If you're in a place of sadness or dealing with emptiness or even, even processing death, things may feel especially dark. The story of Ruth doesn't shy away from the reality of pain. And all of us, no matter who we are, sooner or later, will experience pain in this present world. If you're a believer in Jesus, then your life is a story. If you are a believer in Jesus, your life is a true story of redemption, saturated with redemptive themes, even if it doesn't feel like it, all of the time. It would be worth asking, what redemptive themes do I see at work in my life right now? That may be hard to process. So let's, let's think about the question in a few different ways. See if you can answer yes to, to any one of these questions. Is there an area of life where God is exchanging beauty for ashes? If so, that's a deeply redemptive theme. Or... In your life, can you see God transforming something that is broken? Even if it's been broken for a very long time. If so, if so, that is a very redemptive theme. Is there evidence God is redirecting what was formerly rebellious? 
That's redemptive. That's sanctifying. Or is there a place of sadness in your life that the joy of the gospel is healing? If so, that is a gorgeously redemptive theme in your life. Is the sweetness of Jesus, is the beauty and power and purity of the sweetness of Jesus overcoming the bitterness of a hurt in your life? Even if that hurt goes way back. Is the truth of God's word reigning over your feelings regularly? That's absolutely redemptive. Is the hope of eternal life strengthening you even if you are struggling with death? Is God cultivating increased love for Jesus even if you find yourself in a difficult situation? Perhaps especially if you find yourself in a difficult situation. Is God cultivating increased love for Jesus in the midst of your situation? Or, or if, as you sit here, you are in a place of emptiness. Is your heart longing to be more fully satisfied in God? Because even if, even if you're feeling empty, even if you are empty, if your heart is longing, longing to be more fully satisfied in God, then that is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. If you could say yes, if you could say yes to any one of these questions, to even one of these questions, then that is a beautiful evidence of redemptive themes at work in you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The power of the book of Ruth is grounded in the redemptive exchange or transformation between famine and plenty, between emptiness and fullness, between sadness and joy, bitterness and hope, even death itself and life. So if you can't answer yes, then pause for a moment, no matter where you are, and praise God for evidence of his redemptive work in your life. God's word is a tremendous help when we are burdened because the Bible is never surprised by nor squeamish about suffering. It is a reality in this life. The Bible honestly addresses the reality of brokenness and rebellion in our lives, but the key is it never leaves us there. We are never left. We have not been left to deal with our problems on our own. 
The overarching narrative of all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is that God sent his son from heaven to earth to redeem us from our sins. Well, if he solved that problem, he can handle all the rest of them, even though they really, really hurt. Our story opens with tremendous loss. And for Naomi, our story opens with what had to be unbearable pain. But as we shall see over the next few weeks, what is revealed to Ruth and Naomi is the glory of a God who keeps covenant with his people even when they don't. What is revealed to these women is a God whose glory is not tarnished at all by the frustrating futility of this world. Rather, what is revealed to Ruth and to Naomi in the midst of their emptiness and bitterness is a God who provides a solution to their desperate need through the abundant goodness of a gracious redeemer. They are brought into the to the presence of a redeemer who is not only willing to be identified with them, but to enter into covenant relationship with them. Hmm. Foreshadow anyone? <laughs> but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. One of the distinctions between the characters in the book of Esther and the people that we meet in Ruth is that there, there are no overtly despicable sinners in Ruth. There is no Haman to hate. Rather, the contrast with the characters in Ruth, it's, it's far more subtle. The differences between those who live and make decisions pragmatically or practically. They make decisions in their lives because this seems to make the most sense. These people are contrasted with those who overtly express faith in God. For example, Elimelech didn't know how he was going to feed his family, so he went in search of food. Practical, understandable, but in the context of Ruth, still wrong. Because he wasn't willing to trust in his covenant-keeping God, so he left the promised land to find food. Or the, the kinsman who later chooses not to receive Ruth or to redeem Naomi before Boaz does redeem them, this other man rejects the women on practical grounds because of financial concerns related to the inheritance he would be able to leave to his family. Again, pragmatic, 
understandable, not overtly evil, contrasted with Boaz's faith-filled obedience to trust in God in the midst of this circumstance. Orpah goes back to Moab to find a husband. In fact, Naomi exhorted her to do that. So that's not so much wrong as it is a tragically missed opportunity for her. But Orpah's decision is contrasted with the extraordinary faith and the extraordinary loyalty of Ruth who declares to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Brothers and sisters, that is covenant language from a Moabite widow. Much like those honored in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, the distinguishing marker for the people of God in Ruth is faith in God. Even if that faith is expressed most vividly by a Moabite woman. So are you making any important decisions right now? Perhaps related to your future? Now, I would never say that practical wisdom is necessarily opposed to expressing faith in God. But may I encourage you that whatever criteria you are using to make your decision, no matter how common sense it seems, no matter how pragmatic it seems, may I encourage you that your decision would most essentially reflect your faith and trust in God, whatever it is that you decide. That is a direct application from this tiny but glorious book. Now, the book of Ruth is a love story, but probably not in the way that you think. In many ways, Ruth is a story of love between a young woman and, believe it or not, her mother-in-law. And some people say there are no miracles in the book of Ruth. (laughs) But ultimately, much like Esther, the bigger love story, as we shall see in the coming weeks, is between a covenant-keeping God who protects and continues to provide for the people in whom his soul delights. And he... He keeps covenant with an everlasting and a steadfast love. As Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, declares when he finds out about Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, protection is found in his field from the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Here is found not merely protection from an evil world, but as Ruth gleans, harvests in the field of Boaz, 
she will find herself reaping redemption. Now, in order to help prepare us to receive communion, I want to consider the ways that this book, this tiny little book, uniquely, uniquely gets us to Jesus, the kinsman redeemer who is far greater than Boaz. I mentioned earlier that our, our story begins with a flurry of names here, which factor significantly into our story. And, and that's true enough, but it's more accurate to say that this book begins and ends with a flurry of names. So in order to understand the full significance of our story, we need to glean, as it were, the unique place Ruth holds on the biblical timeline of redemptive history. For this book in particular, that is key to understanding what is happening here. The Old Testament opens with the five books of the law, detailing not only the origin of creation, but the origin of the creation of the people of God as a people. Because of another famine, the people are enslaved by Egypt, but God frees them from their bondage to Pharaoh. The people find themselves in the wilderness for 40 years until they come to the doorstep of the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. Here Moses receives God's law on Mount Sinai, but he does not enter the land. Leadership transfers from Moses to Joshua. The people cross the Jordan River, and the book of Joshua details the conquest of Canaan and ends with a challenge from Joshua to the people to decide this very day whom you will serve. Which is followed by the book of Judges, which details perhaps with the exception of the exile, probably the darkest time in Israel's history. The book of Judges details the cycle of sin that the people fall into. Without consistent leadership throughout the book, the people of God continue to spiral downward morally. To the point that Judges closes with this horrifying indictment. Last verse, book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the 21st century in America, this statement is the greatest possible of all worlds that everyone can do what's right in their own eyes. The problem is the Bible disagrees with that vehemently. So after the book of Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel detail Samuel's role as the last prophet before Saul is named king at the request of the people. 
And remember that God was their king at the time. So this is a great offense to God, but God tells Samuel to give the people what they want. But God soon takes the throne from Saul because of his sin. David, a man after God's own heart, is then anointed king. And he is the greatest king, despite his flaws, in the history of Israel. There's just one problem. How do we get from the end of the book of Judges with no king in Israel to first and second Samuel where David quickly rises to power right after Saul? The way we get there is this tiny little book called Ruth. The way we get there is from a true story about a real family that reveals the fullness of God's redemptive plan. The question becomes, how does this little book reveal the fullness of God's redemptive plan? Well, we don't find out until the very last page. So, spoiler alert, okay? Spoiler alert. Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth has a son. Naomi cares for this little baby. She and the women of the neighborhood give this baby a name, and they name him Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. So then, how do we get to Jesus from here? In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord makes a covenant with David and promises that a descendant of his will sit on the throne forever, ruling an everlasting kingdom. Then, on page 1 of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, he opens with a genealogy that begins with Abraham, a genealogy that runs through Ruth and Boaz and traces the hereditary line all the way to a man named Joseph, who is married to a woman named Mary, who gives birth to a son whose name is Jesus, the one who is called Christ. The fullness of God's redemptive plan through which Ruth plays a very critical part, is amazing. Now, Bethlehem, which is the first city mentioned in our story, it means house of bread. But Elimelech leaves Bethlehem because there is no bread. There's a famine in the land. Then more than a millennium later, a man was born in Bethlehem who declared, I am the living bread 
who came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6 and verse 51. Oh, I wish we were celebrating communion together this morning. It would be so perfect. Today, in communion, we celebrate this Jesus the offspring of David, the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. We celebrate with bread and the fruit of the vine, the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross for the forgiveness of our sins, for the reality of our redemption. Today, we celebrate Jesus in awe that the fullness of God's plan of redemption included not just a couple of widows living in Moab, but we rejoice because the fullness of God's plan of redemption, thousands of years later, across an ocean and across some really beautiful mountains, the fullness of God's redemptive plan included the likes of us, Gentiles, now living in a small town in East Tennessee, in a very young nation called the United States of America, born on July 4th, 1776. The history of Israel, that is, the history of our spiritual people, is even far more important, since through this incomparable sacrifice, the sacrifice that is symbolized before you, our names, our names are now found among the flurry of names of the people of God, that is, of the one true and living God who keeps his covenant promises forever. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. To God alone be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.